The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So last week, we kind of had to skip Luke 21, the second half of that. Um, I think that was for good reason, having John in town. It wasn't part of the plan um, when we were planning out even our sermon schedule for the, the, uh, the, the remainder of the spring and the remainder through the book of Luke. We didn't know at that time that John's visa was going to be approved. So we kind of had to skip over that, which is a little bit frustrating on one sense because it's such a powerful text. And maybe it's something we can come back to at some point in the summer or whatnot. But right now we're on track to hit the resurrection in Luke on Easter Sunday. And I'm just believing that's ordained and we're not messing with it, right? Um, Even today, this is the communion text that we're in, the Lord's Supper text, and this is our normally scheduled communion Sunday as well. So we're just going to keep going forward, but but I want to encourage you guys, like last week's text is very important. Like it's a text that he wants us to read with bifocals. And, and I don't mean that he wants us to read it with bifocals because our, our eyesight is fading as I'm starting to realize for the first time in my life now this winter, and I'm very discouraged about it. it what, what it means is there, there's a near application of it and there's a far application of it. Because he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, that, that there's this destruction coming because they did not recognize him and they had rejected him. And he's saying, hey, you're going to hurt apart from me. There's going to be difficulty in judgment. But then he's also talking about a future judgment and a future return when he will come not humbly on a donkey, but in power from the sky, the Son of Man will return again. And he says, when that day happens, it's going to be terrifying for the entire world. The near events he speaks about is a destruction that Jerusalem undergoes. But the far events he talks about are things where he's saying the world will shake in fear. And think about it, like when you shake in fear, you're, you're bent over, you're scared, you're cowering around. But then he says to his disciples, hey, on that day, when these things happen, when the Son of Man comes in power and with judgment, you stand up straight. You keep your chin up. You lift up your heads, which is a a biblical way over and over and over again of saying, you take hope because your redemption is drawing near. When judgment is coming on the world for this God-rejecting world, for you, lift up your head because that's the day the salvation is coming. That's the day you'll be set free. That's not a scary day for you. That's an encourage. That's the day you're living for. And so what is it that sets us apart, though? Like, why is it he would say to his disciples, for you, this is going to be a really good, happy day. For these guys, these religious leaders and such, this is going to be a terrifying day. Because anyone else in that day and age that was looking at the people around, if you were to ask them, on the day Messiah comes, on the day God comes to visit his people, who are those that God's going to be happiest to see? Everyone would have pointed at these religious leaders and said, well, them for sure. And yet he's going, nope. Nope. On the outside, they're polished, but in the inside, they're decaying. They're full of dead men's bones. That's not who I've come for. And you go, but wait, they're the the religious leaders. They've memorized all the Bible verses. They give of all their tithes. They never miss a Sunday at church. They do everything right. How can it be that it's not them? It's because the gospel isn't about what we do. It's about what Christ has done. And today in this text, we're going to see some of that. Now, let me tell you guys, there's something that happens when you have traveled overseas. If you've never been um, overseas or to even just a third world country anywhere and you come back to the United States, there's something that happens. Like, I 
love Uganda. I love Uganda. Like, except for a few different things here and there, like my family, this church, and maybe Steelhead and Tar Heel basketball, I could about live there. Um, and as I told you guys last year, they've actually given me now a Ugandan name. They call me over there, no joke, they call me Musana over there, and, which means daytime. And it was really funny because uh, John was at an Acts 29 conference, and the next week was when I was going to be in Imbarara. So he was inviting all of these other pastors to come to Imbarara and be part of the training that was going to go there. And he was telling them about us coming, and he said that the pastors there in Kenya were like, oh, Musana's coming? We would love to come here, Musana teach. And I was like, Yeah. <laughs> He even would introduce me as we would go to these churches. He would literally say, um, he is white on the outside, but black on the inside. And I was like, word, yeah, that's me. That's me, without the rhythm, but the rest of it, yeah. I love being in Uganda. But that being said, as much as I love Uganda, there's something that happens when you come home. Even with regards to our nation. Like, look, Our nation has flaws, and they are often displayed for all of us to see. But when we come back home, there's something that happens. Like when you set foot on that American soil that you you get to just go, I'll be okay now. It really happens. There's things that they experience over there that we don't experience here. And and so when you come back, you begin to appreciate what we have here, the blessing that God's given us here in this nation. Now, Now, we have been blessed, I believe, with all my heart. We've been blessed so that we would be a blessing to places like Uganda. It's not so that we become puffed up with pride or arrogant or any of those things. But I think we should be grateful for where God has placed us. And we should be aware of even our heritage and what our, even our nation stands for because when you forget where you came from, it messes up oftentimes where you're actually headed. And so today we're going to be talking about symbols. And I want to think for just a second about a couple of symbols regarding our country to set the stage for what we're actually going to talk about. So let's just take a look at a couple of them, for example. They say, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words. And so these sort of symbols exist to tell a story in a simple way, to remind us of truths. The symbols themselves are not that important. A flag, as precious as it might be, is just fabric. But what it represents What's behind that? That's the part that matters. So consider a couple for me. Here's a first one, for example. This is the great seal of the United States of America. This is a seal chosen, I don't know, I don't know when they chose it, 200 years ago probably, something like that, to, to represent our country. And they chose a bald eagle as a bird. That means something, right? They didn't choose a hummingbird. Not too intimidating. We are the hummingbird of the world. Like, Right? I've always struggled with the Oregon mascots, duck and beaver. How intimidating can that possibly be? But anyway, they chose an eagle. That's what they chose because it's strength, it's nobility, it's majestic, it's powerful. And then here above its head, you see this thing with the 13 stars. You guys know what the 13 stars represent, right? Yeah, you're like the 13 disciples. Yes, no, no. It's, it's, the, it's the 13 colonies that our nation came from, which is significant also because in the beak of the eagle is our phrase, e pluribus unum. Does anybody know what that means? Yell it out. From many, one. 
So these 13 separate colonies come together to join and form this one entity that's held even with power here in the beak of this bird. That's important. That's what it's supposed to mean. In the left, in the left, I, don't, I almost said hand. Those aren't hands. What do you call them? Talons. In the left talon, we see olive branches, which mean we desire and want to be at peace and peaceful people. And yet on the right side, there's these arrows, which means in the absence of liberty, in the absence of freedom, we will go to war to preserve such freedom. It's something we will fight for. If you just look at it and you don't know what all those things mean, you're just like, I don't know, just a random bird with some stuff in his hands. And, but then you go, man, when I understand what's behind them, it's kind of a powerful thing to think about. Let's consider another one. I took this picture myself right here. This is Lady Liberty. What does Lady Liberty stand for? She's like, oh, it's just a pretty statue. It's actually not, not really, if you look at it. She's kind of homely and she's blue. But what does it mean? Like there's symbolism behind this that's powerful. She holds a torch, which is intended to light the way for those who are lost and struggling. In her other arm is this stone tablet with the date of the Declaration of Independence. It's supposed to be that she carries with her liberty and freedom and she lights the way for others who need it. On her foot, there's a broken chain around one of her feet that's supposed to symbolize the reality of breaking the bondage of of oppression, imprisonment, and slavery and leading the way to freedom for others. It's, It's meant to be a symbol of hope for immigrants. And you know the phrase that is attached to this? Anyone know it? Nobody's really ever sure the order and how that thing goes, right? I'll cheat. I'll look it up for all of us. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. It's intended to be a a sign to the immigrant who comes to America as, hey, this is a place where you can have hope and have freedom. It's a powerful thing when you think about it. And then here's one more. Anybody know what this is? Out loud, Iwo Jima. This is Iwo Jima. It's a battle that took place uh, near the end of World War II. It's a powerful picture. I mean, here's these soldiers planting our flag, but, but this isn't just about like colonialism or taking territory. This monument means something significant. Anybody know where this monument's found? Someone yell it out. Somebody has to know. Arlington Cemetery. It's not found on land that speaks of victory. It's found on land that speaks of death. And Iwo Jima, if you don't know, Iwo Jima was a battle that took place on a very, very small island. And even as small as this particular island was, over the course of about 30-something days, 6,800 American men lost their lives on that island. 6,800 in just 30-something days in this one small place. In fact, this right here was actually taken from an actual photo. The people there are actual people. And of the men here in this statue, only one of them survived. The guy at the bottom who's planting the flag in the ground is the only one that came away from the island of Iwo Jima alive. And it represents more than just like, oh, America. It represents the fact that the freedom, the liberty... The hope that the land of America has did not come freely. It was bought by the blood of men and women who spilled literally their guts to buy the freedom and the security that we have. And man, there's something that happens when you go away that a perspective change hits and then you come back home and look, I know, I know we're broken. I know, man... 
I know that all the talk radio would have us think that there's more enemies in our turf than, I mean, it's just, you can get so spun out by everything that's wrong, but you travel over to Africa or you travel to a third world nation and you experience some of the things that those guys have to deal with on a daily basis. Then you come back home. The moment you set foot on American ground, there's this feeling that comes over you that goes, I'm okay now. Come what may, I'll be all right. I mean, think about this. No one here in our culture uh, worries about invasions. Like, we don't. John, John's culture does. Uh, Pastor John and I, we were at Cascade's senior Bible class just this week, and he was telling the story of how he got called into ministry and became a pastor. And the reason that that happened and the place where it happened is because one night during a tribal war, groups were coming in from Kenya and raiding areas in Uganda, and his father was murdered. And he had to run for his life because of these raiding armies that came in. And as he was running, he entered and ended up in a certain village, and God spoke to him in that place and said, this is where you're going to stay and plant a church. Like, that's his actual life. His father, not years and years and years ago, his dad. We don't think about that. Like, no one in our country is laying awake at night like, ooh, the Canadians. <laughs> right? If anything, we're arrogant towards them, right? About things like that. Like, we don't care. No one worries about that kind of stuff. It just isn't on our radar. None of us worry about corruption. I think I told you guys last week about the police officer that pulled, over, pulled us over while we were driving, and, and the, the guy just wanted a bribe. And he just said to our driver, you have an unpaid ticket. And our driver says, no, I don't. I paid it. And he goes, well, I'm going to impound your car. He says, you don't have the right to impound my car. And he says, I'm taking your license tags. You're not going to be able to drive if you don't. Like, what do you do? What are you supposed to do? And he eventually goes, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, for 50,000 shillings, I'll make this all go away. It's just corruption. And the vast majority of people in Uganda are powerless to that type of corruption. That's part of like normal life. We don't wake up worrying about that kind of stuff here. I mean, there's systems in place. I, I know sometimes unfair things happen because some of you have been watching a lot of Netflix documentaries like me lately. So I, I know that unfair things happen from time to time, but that's not part of our daily experience. We're not worried about that. And we even have systems written into our cultural experiences here that are designed to protect us from things like that happening. Not everybody has that. Not everybody has that. We don't worry about tribal justice. They do. Um, if, you, if you look up in, uh, um, on the U.S. State Department website and you look at the travel warnings regarding Uganda, there's mostly nothing. But what they actually do talk about is they said uh, um, accidents in vehicles is the number one cause by far of injury or death with people that are over there. And if you've driven over there, you get it, trust me. And then, but on top of that, they said if an accident occurs, you don't stop in the village if someone's injured. You go to the next village and call the cops. Yeah, that's weird. That's leaving the scene of an accident. In America, we get in trouble if we do that. Why do they do that there? Tribal justice. And I've seen it happen with my own eyes. We saw this on a trip some years ago. Coming through, there was a local guy in a village riding one of the motorcycles. They call them Boda Bodas over there. It got hit by a taxi that was taking people from one town to another, and it was just passing through. So not a local boy driving the taxi, local boy driving the motorcycle. He got hit. The guy went down to the ground. He wasn't wearing a helmet, and literally his head exploded. And it was the most grotesque thing I've ever seen. Literally, his brains were spread along the road. It was horrific. And the guy driving the taxi 
knows what just happened. He was freaked out, and he pulls over to the side of the road to see about helping and to see what's going on. And the tribal people there who saw their local boy die, doesn't matter if it was justified accident, doesn't matter whose fault it was, right in front of us, drag him out of the van, beating him to death right there on the side of the road. We don't worry about that ever, ever. No one's been in a fender bender or an accident and then worried about their own life in that very moment. We are so, so blessed to live where we are. Now, Our blessings exist that we might stand up for those who don't have such blessings and that we might invest in places like Uganda and help them to stand, amen? To be leveraged for the sake of the weak. That's what the gospel teaches us to do. But guys, we are so blessed. I know our country is a mess in so many different ways, but it's the best that there is right now, and we are blessed to live here, amen? But listen, that was a weak amen. And you're like, you don't talk about America very much. I know, I talk about the gospel, but I'm, I'm giving you a chance. Amen? Amen? But listen, this is my nation. This is not my kingdom. This is our nation. This is not our kingdom. And as important and moving and powerful as signs like this are, there's something else that's infinitely more valuable infinitely more powerful. There's yet another sign that matters much, much more. And sometimes out of familiarity, we forget what's really behind it. And we can travel to Arlington and we can see Iwo Jima and be moved by those experiences, but it's good that we stop and remember what's behind maybe the most important symbol ever given in the history of the world. Now, in our text here, there's three different things that are taking place. The first thing that's happening here is that Jesus is yet again displaying his sovereignty and his power and his control over all things. It's really easy, as we read these stories, to think of Jesus as being the weak and powerless one as all of these things happen to him. But let me encourage you yet again, that's not the case. He is still just as sovereign and just as in control as ever. He's telling the disciples, hey, here's how it's going to go. Here's the guy you're going to follow. He's got a room. Just track with that whole thing. Like He knows everything that's going to happen. Not one moment on earth was Jesus powerless. Amen? And I think that's important to remember because it makes the sacrifice even more, even more incredible. Like, I mean, just think of the times that we, under pressure or suffering or difficulty, if we could, wouldn't we snap our fingers to get out of it in a heartbeat? And yet he chose to stay. I think it was maybe Max Licato or someone like that that said, nails did not hold Jesus to the cross. His love for us is what held him to the cross. He was always powerful enough to break away from that. And in this thing, it doesn't matter what's happening, doesn't matter who's in control, doesn't matter the trial, any of those things. He is sovereign and powerful and in control every single step of the way. Look at verse 22 even. It says, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. He didn't fall victim to circumstances and it just got out of control and there was nothing he could do, but good thing he could rise from the dead and he'll make it all good in the end. No, 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 no. He was in control every single step of the way. It was all done by his will. And that is a beautiful thing to remember when you consider the the magnitude of suffering that our king took on on our behalf. Amen? So we see that in this text. The other thing that's happening here is really tragic. Judas is gone. Judas is gone. 
Um, Judas Iscariot, my, my daughter is here at Cascade, and she had a project, I think, this week for Senior Bible, and she was like, hey, Dad, tell me everything you know about Judas Iscariot, because <laughs> she had to do some project for, oh, her teacher's here, too. That's funny. Uh, I didn't help her at all, teacher. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But here's the sad thing. You know what the sad thing is? The first thing that I said to her when she said, tell me what you know about Judas Iscariot, I said, well, don't look for him in heaven. Don't look for him in heaven. You're not going to find him. This guy pursued money and prestige and power and comfort and all of these things for so long. And our God, who was in control and sovereign the entire time, knew what was going on in his heart the whole time and was so patient with him and gave him so many opportunities to repent. And yet at the same time, we see the will of Judas coupled together with the sovereignty of Jesus, where this thing also happens in an important and needed way to accomplish what Jesus had come to do. But it's tragic. It's tragic. The text tells us that Satan enters into Judas. It goes in verse 22 to say, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas is an absolute tragic, tragic figure. And then there's this other thing that happens. And I know you go, well, it's communion. Yeah, we know about the Lord's Supper. Yeah, but there's something Jesus does here that for us, like I said, familiarity, we're used to this. But if you were a Jew in this time and you'd grown up in that Old Testament theology your entire life, there's something that takes place in this text that you would have been like, wait, 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 what? What did you just say, Jesus? Take a look at what happens in this text. Jesus says to them, verse 14, when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled. Now, Passover, what is Passover? Um, You guys probably already know this, but in case we have visitors or whatnot, it's good for us to revisit this. Passover is the time when God sent Charlton Heston um, into Egypt to deliver the people of Israel and say, let my people go, right? or Moses. That, that joke only works in America. That joke does not work in Uganda, trust me. But, um, but uh, <laughs> Passover. So the people of Israel, the book of Exodus tells us, were a people enslaved. They were under complete oppression. They were not broken free from a chain like Lady Liberty shows us. They were under oppression. And yet still, because they were God's people, they were growing and they were being blessed. And so the response of the Egyptian government and the Egyptian king was to increase the amount of oppression that was um, put on the people of Israel. And so they were worked harder and harder and harder. And it even gets to the point that the people of Egypt are even killing Israeli babies in order to make sure that the people don't grow and become more powerful than them. It's a horrific display. And yet, the God of creation is so loving and so kind. He hears their cries. He hears their wailings, even for a people that don't really even understand yet who he is. And he sends this man named Moses. And Moses comes before Pharaoh, the king, and says, I've been sent on behalf of the true and living God. And God says, let my people go. And what happens out of that is this incredible drama of these, these, uh, um, these plagues that happen over and over and over, demonstrating that he's the true and powerful God and that he's sovereign over all of these Egyptian gods, the God of the Nile River, gods of life, all these different things. This, it's like a week-long sermon. And then at the end, 
God says, okay, my patience has run out. Pharaoh has hardened his heart, so now I've hardened his heart. It's actually very similar to what you see with Judas here. There comes a point when the heart has been hardened and he's done. And God says, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm sending an angel of death upon the land of Egypt, and he's going to kill the firstborn of every human and animal, actually. He's going to come through the land, and he's going to execute the firstborn everywhere. But here's the deal, Israel, because you're my people, and because I've heard your cries, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take this lamb. You're going to bring a lamb, a spotless lamb, into your home. You're going to slay this lamb, and you're going to take the blood of that lamb and paint it upon your doorposts. And when that angel comes in bringing judgment to the land, when it sees the blood of that lamb on your doorpost, it's going to pass over your house and continue going, and you will be spared of this judgment. And because of this death of this lamb, you're going to be set free. And it happens. Egypt wakes up in horror, and there's death everywhere. But to the people of Israel who had applied the lamb's blood on their doors, they're spared, and they're set free. That's what the Passover was. And there's this meal that's installed called the Passover meal, and it's a symbol, it's an event to to look back at what had happened in the past and remember the grace and mercy of God. Remember that in spite of opportunities to follow all sorts of pagan gods anywhere, this is the God that loves you and has delivered you, and it's it's an event to look past. And so Jesus says, we're going to have the Passover meal. The guys would think, yeah, that's what we do. We're Jewish. It's time. Let's do it. And they get the place, and they get all the meal. And then Jesus says something really, really weird. He says about the Passover meal, verse 16, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled. That's a weird thing to say about something that already happened, isn't it? Like if you're there, you're going, "Uh, wait a minute, did you just say you're not going to eat until this is fulfilled? Jesus, this is, um, I hate to break it to you because you're a great teacher, but... um, that happened a long time ago. This meal just reminds us of something that happened in the past. But what Jesus does in this moment is he takes a very important symbol, and now he reorients it for the disciples of Jesus Christ, and he says, no, 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 it's also pointing to something that's going to come. It's not just talking about something that happened, but something that's yet to come. And so he says, He takes the bread in verse 19 and says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And that's the key phrase. Because see, something happened in the Passover back in the day. The people of Israel get delivered and they make their way across the Red Sea. All that stuff happens and they get out into the wilderness. And God says to them, okay, I'm your God and you're my people. And we're going to enter into covenant together. It's a a bilateral covenant, meaning each side has terms to uphold. And God says to them, this is what it looks like to be my people. And he starts in grace in the book of Exodus. He begins by saying, I am the Lord your God that delivered you out of slavery. I'm the one that rescued you. I'm the one that set you free because it always starts with grace. Obedience never comes first. It always starts with grace. And he says, I am the Lord your God that rescued you. And then he says, and here's what it's going to look like to be my people. Number one, you'll have no other gods but me. Number two, there'll be no graven images, and et cetera, et cetera, on and on through the law. The law is not just something about this is what I like and what I don't like. These were the terms of the covenant that the people of Israel were called to uphold 
And it was their part of maintaining that relationship with God. And then God on his end would be their God, their defender, their provider. He would make them to grow in the face of their enemies. He would lead them to the holy land, to the promised land. He, would, he was going to protect them and be for them what they had never had and had never experienced and could never find anywhere else. But if they didn't do it, they would be left to their own. His hand of protection would be removed. He would not be the provider. He would not be the protector. He would not be the one blessing their land in spite or during their disobedience. And it would be all on them. And he says, and in the end, what's going to happen is without my protection, without my hand on your lives, you're going to be scattered. You're going to be persecuted. Your nation's going to be split. It's not going to go well. So please maintain this covenant. Stay and be my people. The people said, everything you've said we will do. We are in. And it lasted like a day. And the the story of the Old Testament is the constant failure of the people to maintain that covenant. And looking at it from that direction, it's really kind of sad. If you think about it, here they are eating this Passover meal and honoring it with festivity and everything and not even thinking about the fact that everything that represents they've failed on ever since. And then Jesus says, but this is the new covenant. New covenant? What's the new covenant? Well, it says this in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31. We can put it on the screen here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer will people teach his neighbor or each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Oh, that last verse is important. The previous covenant was, hey, if you mess up, I'll remove my hand, I'll remove my presence. But this one says, when you mess up, not if, when you mess up, I'm going to forgive your sin. I'm going to forgive your iniquity. See, this is a different covenant. This is a unilateral covenant. In other words, only one side has terms to fulfill. It's like a pledge or a declaration that says, in the new covenant, it's not going to be determined by what you do. It's not going to be based on you upholding the terms. It's not going to be about your behavior. It's not going to be about any of these things. In the new covenant, it's all going to be about me. And then Jesus comes and says, and the way this new covenant happens is going to be based on what I do, what I've done. And what am I going to do? I'm going to be crushed for your sin. The sin that you do that deserves punishment, I will endure it. My blood's going to be poured out for your forgiveness so that though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. I'm going to be the one to do the work on the cross that will be, it's my work that will govern and and maintain our relationship. Not you, not anyone else. It's all about me. It is all about me. And church, this symbol here that's given to us this, this meal, the bread that is broken representing the broken body of Christ, the, the juice that we drink that represents the spilled blood of Christ. Listen, this is the 
pinnacle. This is the center. This is the foundation. This must be the focus of everything that the church does always. Anything else that we focus on is wrong. And you go, well, of course, it's the cross. It's what we do. We got the cross right there. It's right in the middle too. See? Center. Focus. Yeah, but we have a tendency to drift. Either us or churches in general. I mean, historically, if you just think, the charismatics, for example, charismatic movements have come and gone and come and gone and come and gone that, that end up emphasizing what? The gifts of the Spirit rather than the work of Jesus Christ. They'll start with the work of Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross, but then they'll say, now because of that, His Spirit's been given to you, and the sign that you look to to see that you're saved is not the cross, but it's your works, it's, it's these spiritual gifts and the signs and wonders that you do. And the, instead of focusing on the cross as the, the element of salvation, we're looking at evidence within ourselves to do these things. Or um, there's been liberal movements throughout Christianity over and over and over. People worry that it's just our day and age. It's not true. It, it's been a part of history over and over. Do a church history class, and the one thing you learn is that we've always been the same. And, and liberal movements will come through and they'll say things like, what we really need to focus on is social justice. Because we need to just display the gospel and quit being so preachy all the time. So we need, to, we need to clothe the orphans. We need to give food to the hungry. That's what we need to do and just focus on that. And that can't be the focus. That's, that's works. That's the stuff that we do. And the Bible itself says that our works of righteousness are like filthy rags before God. So the focus can't be filthy rags. It's got to be different than that. And then the pendulum swing to the other side is legalism that says, no, 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 the emphasis needs to be our behavior. We need to be moral. We don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't cuss, we don't chew, and we don't hang with those who do. Like, that's what we have to be about. And we need to preach all the things that we're supposed to do and all the things that we're not supposed to do. Forget that that's what Israel did and it didn't work. We'll ignore that and we'll just focus on that and let's always talk about behavior and morals and make sure you're being a good Christian. Yet Ephesians says that salvation comes by grace, not by works, lest any man should boast. And see, that's the issue with all of these. Whether you're talking about focusing on spiritual gifts, signs, and wonders, whether you're talking about being active in the community and social justice, or whether you're talking about focusing on, on being good moral Christians, all of those things can be really, really good things, but they're all secondary to the truth of the gospel because if you focus on any of those things, it leads to boasting. The gifts aren't about what God did. The gifts are about, look how powerful he is. He's the healer. He's the miracle guy. He's whatever that might be. Or man, look how many orphans they've taken care of. Look at all this stuff that they've done. Or look how good he is. Look how he never messes up. He never does this. He never does that. He obeys all the different stuff. And that's the same kind of stuff Jesus pointed his finger at, at the religious leaders over there and said, you're doing all this stuff on the outside and your inside is dead. And those things all lead to boasting. And here's the truth, guys. No one on the day that the Son of Man does return, no one on earth is going to boast. No one. Let me, let me give you an example. I'm excited to show you guys this analogy, if only because it's a rad video, but it's the perfect time to do it. So we took a day off while we were in Uganda last time, as we do on every trip. And we went on an uh, um, African safari. One of the best 
uh, safari uh, parks or areas, national parks in the world is less than two hours away from Oasis of Hope Church. So we always take a day and go down there and you get in these vehicles where the roofs kind of cut out and stand out through the top and just drive through um, the wilderness out there and, and just look for animals. And they're like all around you. We found all kinds of animals. And this one was like the best that we've ever had. Like, it was unbelievable. We took a boat ride at one point, and there was over 60 elephants, six zero, just hanging out by the shore. Um, we saw crocodiles everywhere. We saw warthogs. We saw hippos. Baboons chased our car trying to get inside. Um, literally, uh, I was hand-feeding monkeys, these mangoes. Like, it was an incredible experience. But listen, the pinnacle of an African safari is the lion, and it's not even close. Like, the pinnacle. And to be able to see a lion, like, we leave at 4 a.m. to go to this park because the opportunities to see lions, are, they're hard to find. You've got to get lucky. I think I've done this now like seven times, and this is the only the third time that we've found lions, and nothing compares to the experience that we had this time. So we get there, and we're driving through this area, and we find all these, uh, everybody that's in these cars is kind of parked on the side of the road, and there's this male lion laying there on the ground. Like, he looked dead. Like there wasn't, it, it was like one of those things. You ever gone to like the zoo to see like the pandas or some special exhibit and you go and you stand there for an hour and you're like, oh, it moved its ear. <laughs> That's literally what we were doing. We're just sitting there like people, I even have video of people in our group going here, kitty, 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 kitty. <laughs> it was pathetic, but that's what we were doing. And then, yeah, me too. But then the lion heard the sound of another lion roaring. And this lion in particular, and they know what they are. They, they actually, uh, uh, whoever it is that does this, has, has tagged them with these collars so they can track them because there's poachers that come into this area. And you have to understand, like, this will ruin zoos. This will ruin wildlife safari for you. It, it's, when I say park, it's not fenced in area. It's like going to Crater Lake National Park and looking for animals, except they're everywhere. You just drive around. And this lion, this guy and his two brothers are um, the dominant male lions in that park. And they said they are the most dominant lions that park has ever had in recorded history. And anytime these lions hear another lion, they drive them out, and they, uh, the male lions anyway. And they protect that area and the females all for themselves, you know, chauvinistic male dirtbags. And so, uh, so, so it's lying there, and then they hear, it, it hears this roar. And the lion popped up, and the experience was incredible. You, you, you suddenly go from kitty kitty to king of the jungle. So we have, this is just cell phone video, okay? This is not high-end, super zoom, none of this. Check this out. Whoa. Uh, So he's now looking for the sound of that, that lion. And just to show you guys, like, so, so as we're there that far away, I don't know how to explain this to you, but you can kind of feel it from the thing. Like you would feel it. Like the power in this roar was unbelievable. And then as it comes closer, you can see the muscles and everything. Check this thing out. It's just a cell phone video. 
And we're like geeking out like crazy, not even thinking about the fact that we have an open roof on our vehicle. (laughs) And look how close this thing even comes to us. It's amazing. We were just in awe at the power of this thing. Look at that. That's our people right there. (laughs) How amazing is that? And we're like sitting there watching this like, I can't, I'm telling these guys like, you don't understand, this never happens in here. Like we are just geeking out completely and we're just amazed and people are laughing and all this kind of stuff. You know what no one said? No one in either vehicle said, I'm so strong. (laughs) No one in either vehicle said, I am a powerful animal. You actually feel really small. Because you are suddenly faced with something that is much more powerful than you. And it takes away even the idea of boasting from the equation. It's it's like even the thought of boasting doesn't exist anymore because we are in the presence of the king of the jungle and we know our place. That's what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. It will not matter all the things you've done to add to your resume You will stand before the king of the universe and you will not boast, you will bow. And the crazy thing is, the Bible tells us that when we see him, we will see him as a lamb having just been slain. We won't see him, we'll see him as a lion and then realize he bears the marks of us. He bears the scars that I earned. And I'm, I'm there in my glorified body, right? I've never been better than that moment. And there's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king of the universe, the master of all things, the most powerful thing that could ever possibly exist. And he's scarred because of me. There will be no boasting in front of Jesus. There will be bowing. There will be tears. There There will be shut mouths and faces on the ground before Jesus. That's the reality of the gospel. That's the importance of the cross of Jesus Christ. Nothing is more important than that. Nothing we do, as good as it might be, from caring for orphans in Uganda to doing things here, whatever it is, nothing is the focus except that truth that our lion became the Passover lamb and died for sinners like you and me, gave of his life that we might find ours. That's the new covenant. That's what we're about, church, and nothing's more important than that. The Bible tells us, amen. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also now deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're about to have communion here, and it's a symbol that is so important 
and powerful. It's not just a symbol. It's not just a religious activity. It's a proclamation of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And our hands will hold bread that's been broken. Even as we eat it and as it's crushed by our teeth, we're reminded of the truth that the lion of the tribe of Judah was beaten because of the sins we have committed, that he took our place on that cross. And as we drink of that cup, we are reminded that the blood of Jesus Christ was poured out so that we, whose sins are like scarlet, are now somehow white as snow. And we are reminded, even like the images we saw before, that this came at a great price. Our freedom from sin and death was bought by the precious blood of the slain Lamb of God, that Jesus' death has paved the way that we might have life and righteousness. It's a powerful thing, church. And it's good to be reminded that this isn't just tradition. And some of us just go to church because it's like habit, which is a stupid hobby to have. There's way more fun things to be doing. But if it's worship, remembering what God did for us, the God of the universe, the one that spoke lions like that into existence and can shut their mouths, even in the Daniel stories, wow. To realize that he gave his life for us, this becomes really important. It becomes a symbol infinitely more moving, infinitely more meaningful, and infinitely more important than the greatest of our American symbols. It's the symbol of the new covenant that we will get to proclaim together. If you're here this morning and you're visiting Heritage Christian Fellowship, first of all, let me welcome you and say, we are so happy that you're here. And my hope is, is that you will find us welcoming and willing to open any door we can and, and just whatever we can do to serve you and take care of you and, and just be here for you. We want to do that. But can I just encourage you of something and just hear me out on this? The meal that we're about to take, um, in the same way that we have rules that govern the way we handle certain American symbols like our flag, the meal that we're about to take is a meal for Christians. It's a meal for those that believe in Jesus. That text in Corinthians goes on to say this, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. He says that if we eat of this meal in an unworthy manner, then the death of Jesus Christ, we are actually guilty of that. Like the blame of that death is placed upon our record. And the reason is this, The blood that was spilt to cover our sins is precious. And if we reject that covering, we reject that blood and yet take of that meal, even if you don't intend to, it makes a mockery of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so my encouragement to you would be to do what the text goes on to say. It says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks or eats without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. My encouragement and my call to you is this be saved. Believe in Jesus Christ. Go to him even in prayer. Repent of your sins and put your faith in that work on the cross. Beg of his forgiveness for sin, which he promises to grant you. Put your trust in him and then come and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And if you're not there yet, that's okay, man. We want to walk with you and we would love to meet with you, answer questions, whatever we can, but just I'm encouraging you even for your own good, and you may think this is superstitious or whatever, but for your own good, just seek the Lord as as you're there. For believers, what does that mean? 
for believers in Jesus to eat in an unworthy manner. What does that mean? I used to think growing up in a legalistic background that that meant, um, therefore, you can't have this if you've committed any sin. But that's actually dumb. Because the whole point is that we have committed sin, and this is where our healing and forgiveness comes from. So it can't be that. It can't be I have to be good enough to come forward when the Bible says there's none who are good except Jesus. But we can still do kind of the same thing if we don't take the opportunity to stop and confess our sins, to to say, Lord, is there wickedness in me that I'm clinging to or I'm trying to hold on to your body and blood at the same time that I'm trying to hold on to this very thing that you spilled your blood to forgive me from? So what I want to do is we're going to give you guys some time to do just that, to, to just go before the Lord, to humbly say, Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me. And then let me encourage you, man, repent of that. And then come to the table and realize and experience the forgiveness of sin that came because of the blood of Jesus Christ and because of the body of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to give you a few minutes, wherever you are in your your walk, your spiritual journey, wherever you are in that, to just spend some time in prayer, to think some of those things through. And then Pastor John's going to come up here and he's, he's going to just declare the good news of the gospel to you and just remind you that you have been forgiven because of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then you're going to come forward, you're going to eat of the bread, and then you're going to worship Jesus for his grace. Amen? Will you do some, spend some time with the Lord now? Thank you, Jesus. It's all about you. It's all about you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the salvation. Thank you for the grace. Thank you, Lord. Yeah. Let me hope that you have taken that good moment as you have been listening to the gospel, to the word of God. As we are living today, some of us ask ourselves, but what is the gospel? And how can I walk my life through with the gospel? The gospel just brings us into the reality that one time God created the earth. When you go in the book of Genesis, you'll find it that God created the earth. And in the gospel, you'll have to see creation, fall, redemption, and reconciliation. These are the areas which we have in the gospel which are very, very important. I want us to look through quickly and see how God has planned this. And this is all our entire salvation which we are looking at. Sometimes when we look at salvation at a position, a position place, that maybe I got saved once and for all. 
I no longer need salvation as I continue in life. But according to the gospel, you need salvation to continue in salvation to be more, more, more into salvation. When God created the man, he wanted so much that he may have a fellowship with the man because man, God gave him all the power over the creation, over the things God created. But as they went on, the man who was created in God's image, to have a relationship with God, to worship him, and also to be thankful to him, to honor the Lord, he didn't continue like that. He ended up sinning by rebelling against God. Rebelling is a great sin which man committed in the first. And when he committed rebellion, he started rebelling against God's law. There other sins also came out of this big sin. That's why you see, when you go in Genesis, you'll find that God, uh, when man sinned, then he lost the harmony. He lost the relationship with God. He became hostile to God. I don't know whether you understand the word hostile. Hostility, someone running away from someone. Whenever you see someone, you feel guilt and run away. This is what happened to man. And from that day, man didn't again work upon bringing back the relationship because he could not manage it. That relationship between God and man was spoiled. Again, it, is not, it did not remain just that relationship between man and God, but man to man was also fractured. It was also broken. Man could not again relate to each other in a very good way. We see accusation started. They started accusing one another because of what was going on. And not only that, we continue to see that even murder started in the first books of Genesis mainly Genesis chapter 3 and 4, you find these things happening. As they continue in life with all that struggle of sin, not only that, but also they had their relationship with man and, uh, and uh, relationship between man and nature has never been good right from Genesis. People have walked uh, animals have walked their way. Those who are to be cared of by man, whenever they could see man, they run away. They don't have that relationship. There is hostility everywhere in life. But not only that, as we continue, we see that the fall of man, this is where we see the fall of man, through rebellion, now man couldn't help himself to save himself at all. 
because he did not have any way of saving himself to go back to God. But because of God's love and care, he wanted again to bring man to himself. This was done through redemption. And it needed the blood to be shed, which was the blood of Jesus Christ. So we see, bringing back a man, it is on the cost of the blood of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. So, when God brought Jesus in and he died for the people, that was not only the end of it. We see that man, he also he had to do his part. His, his part was not with works. Because the Lord didn't save man, that is works. Or whatever we could think of, couldn't save man. Only one thing which was to save man was to have faith in Christ alone. As you read in the books of the book of Romans, you get this one very well. That there is nowhere man could be counted worthy but through having faith, which is the grace of God in the in the what? In Christ alone. And Christ alone is through his death and resurrection. People of God, men of God and women of God, God demanded response from a man in order to see this salvation continuing in life. This response is to see our sins, to understand that we are sinners, who could not help themselves to confess to the Lord that for sure we needed help that the Lord may forgive us to start a new journey a new life with Christ with the Lord into eternity we talk about reconciliation reconciliation is in another way what we call to abolish enmity between two parties. Someone coming in when maybe two parties were in a quarrel and you come, you bring them together into agreement. That is what we call reconciliation. Jesus Christ came in. When a man didn't agree with God because of what man has done, and this work was done through Jesus Christ. And he is still doing it even up to today to continue reconciling us into the presence of the Lord. This is very, very important note. This is what we call restoration. As God is restoring us into his presence, as we come in his presence, we can take the true gospel to be saved completely and to continue in the sanctification. That's why in Galatians he says, uh, Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ Jesus. Nevertheless do I live but Christ in me. The life I live in my, my body is for Christ who died on the cross by faith in Christ alone. 
and to surrender to be able to know that if I'm to continue and meet God who was angry who is angry the judgment day is only Jesus is the only answer I cannot stand righteous without him that's why we need to surrender completely our lives to Christ Jesus alone and help us teach us day and day learn all day and day as we see the the, 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 the communion reminding us every day of his days and how we can maintain it may the Lord help you help me to continue like that and that will be the gospel believers in Jesus, there is hope and there is forgiveness and we are reminded of it in this most important symbol that has ever existed. If you're a follower of Jesus, bathe in the blood of the Lamb. I invite you to come to the table, to come have a meal with Jesus and then return and worship. If you guys would, use, oh we have multiple aisles, never mind, we'll figure it out later, just come. Come and have a meal with Jesus.
church amen amen hey guys will you do me a favor will you just today's his last what oh there it is today's his last day here with us uh pastor not last day last service with us he'll be here this week but he'll be flying home next sunday morning so can you guys give like a ugandan style level welcome one last time and john will you come up and say goodbye to everybody real quick Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Yes. I wanted to just to you may get seated. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> I've been to church in Uganda. <laughs> yeah. It's so wonderful. So wonderful. You people to welcome me. I want to tell you that I'm so so grateful to be with you. This two Sundays with you and all these two weeks. It has been so good. I've prayed your love, your care. You are so social. Not only for me, but even to the entire Ugandans. Because I saw the good work which you did when you contributed to the needed churches and I felt that really your heart is for the gospel. And I've liked it so much. Please keep that love. And I want to thank God, not only for this time. You have been able to stand with us right from the time I knew him. And I've been longing to come over and see you people. And at least I convey our love, our, our great, great gratefulness for the things that you have done for us. I can't count them one by one, but you have been so helpful, so supportive financially, uh, spiritually, and also you have been so uh, supportive prayerfully that we may stand, we may continue. And there for sure we are standing I would like to, at least, there are some friends who are with me, who came with me. Can you stand again and I see you? Those who are with me. You're talking, the, about, the, yeah. you're talking about the team that came back? Yes, yeah. which came. Yeah, okay. 
I was like, did we bring more? I thought we just brought you. Like, (laughs) yes. Uh oh, we smuggled. (laughs) You are people. You you people, thank you so much. You did a great work. Even you made my company when I was coming so grateful. I was knowing that where I was going, I'm secure, as he has said, Mm -hmm. because of boarding with you, coming with you. May the Lord bless you so much. Bless your families. Bless whatever you do. May the Lord bless. So, uh, I'll be going back, but I'm going to take back. Please get seated. I'll be taking back. I'll be taking back the, the greetings from you. Maybe you can tell me what can I send? What can I say when I'm there? Uh, we love you, oh, man. We please. love Oasis of Hope Church. Amen? Please. Amen? Thank you so much. May the Lord bless you. And I, I, think, I, I think the one other thing that we can say for sure is we've had 10 years, but we're not going anywhere. And we're going to stay with Oasis for as long as the Lord will grace us. Amen? Amen. That's what we're going to keep doing, man. Amen. I love you, brother. I love you, brother. Hey, guys, stand with me, would you? God, we thank you so much. Come here, you. Lord, we just, we thank you so much for, Lord, how you have blessed our time, Lord. I always come back from Uganda charged up, but I just feel like, Lord, by blessing us with having John here, you've encharged our entire, or you've uh, um, energized our entire church, Lord, and I just thank you for that grace. Lord, may you protect him as he travels this week, Lord, and, and, and just continue to bring that same gospel grace back to that church. I pray your blessing over the, the money that we were able to raise. Lord, may you use it to spread your kingdom. And we're just thankful, Lord, for the way that you have blessed us all, both here and there. You are so good. And Lord, we look forward to the day that we get to worship together forever. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. amen. Hey, we love you guys. Have a great week. Remember, you can give towards the Oasis of Hope Church properties there at the door on your way back. Um, Otherwise, walk in the power of the gospel this week. We love you guys. God bless.